0: Welcome. This is the Mac Observer's Background Mode Podcast, and I am your host, John Martellaro. This week, my guest is Dr. Kiki Sanford, back for the eighth time. Kiki, welcome back.
1: Hi, thanks for inviting me back again.
0: You're one of my favorite guests. We always have such interesting technical science conversations. You are so well-versed in science, and we always have fun things to talk about. So for the listeners who um, haven't listened before, Dr. Kiki Sanford is a neurophysiologist with a PhD from the University of California, Davis. Early in her career, she obtained her Bachelor's of Science in Conservation Biology, a field that covers animals, their environment, and how humans impact them. Today, she's a very popular science communicator and creator and host of This Week in Science. It's glorious a podcast mm-hmm. and radio show. This is her, as I mentioned, eighth appearance on background mode. Woo-hoo. Welcome back.
1: Thank you. It's always good to be here. I love talking about science, digging into things. Yeah. It's always fun to talk with you. It
0: is fun to talk to you because you have such great perspectives and you're such a great communicator about science. Let's get started with some of the things that have been on your show recently that caught my attention. Great. Great. So the first one on my list is something that's on everybody's mind right now, the coronavirus. Apparently it has crossed or jumped species. I'm I'm I'm, I'm an amateur in this area and you're pro. So uh, I thought it was very difficult for viruses to jump species. Tell me about it this.
1: Is. Yeah, it is very different different. It is very difficult for viruses to jump species. They have to make some genetic mutations occur and to enable the uh, the, the passage uh, from one species to another so that it doesn't get, you know, disabled by an immune system or so that it can actually get into cells and propagate within those cells. Um But so the story that we had last week on the show was a very early study that came out looking at the genetics of this new virus, which is called um, NCOV 2019. This is novel. The N stands for novel and CoV stands for coronavirus. A coronavirus is a very um, it's uh, the common cold can be caused by strains of coronavirus but some strains yeah coronavirus if you just say coronavirus that doesn't really mean anything it's like saying dog you don't know what kind of dog it is Um, but these are viruses that are infectious to uh, many different species depending on the strain of coronavirus they happen to be and they often cause uh respiratory uh distress. Um, so uh, SARS and also the MERS viruses were coronaviruses, and that's why we know the coronavirus name, and it kind of tickles your memory banks. You're like, I've heard of those before.
0: Because it's stuff you don't hear on the nightly news.
1: No, <laughs> you have to dig into it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so they can be a real problem, or they can be not Much of a problem at all, make your nose sniffle, and that's it. Um, However, this new one coming out um, so, the story that we talked about last week, uh, I just want to keep in mind that it was a very early paper that had been published looking at the uh, genetics of the virus. They conducted a detailed genetic analysis, compared it with other genetic information on different viruses from lots of different locations and host species, and They the authors, the investigators in that study concluded that it seemed to be a virus that formed from a combination of a coronavirus found in bats and a different coronavirus from someplace else. And then they looked at some other aspects of it and decided that, hey, this novel and this NCOV likely came from snakes before being transmitted to humans. Now,
0: wait a minute, I'm confused. how does right. how do snakes and bats fit together?
1: Well, these animal uh, these animal markets where lots of different species of animals are sold and traded for food for skins very often are a hotbed of disease transmission, and if things are going to jump, uh, many times they will. Um, this is where different species will come together in the same place it, with the possibility of uh, of recombinations occurring. However, let me just tell you, in the time since last week's show when we talked about that, this study has been kind of, not debunked, but that aspect of it coming from a snake has been discredited. So people don't really think it came from a snake anymore. They do think it came from one of these uh, one of these food markets in China and uh, it, it originally they've looked they're t- still trying to find patient zero. They haven't really uh, tracked it down that far yet but they are back uh, they've tracked it back to about November as to when it first started arising in the human population. There was a question for a while as to whether or not there was human to human transmission. We now know this is transmitted from person to person is it by
0: contact or airborne
1: so this is the question and it it seems that if people are asymptomatic in that they're not showing any symptoms but they are infected they can still uh transmit the 2019 ncov and that is a a bit of concern because that means it's not Mm. necessarily airborne You know, you've got a little bit, you know, you wipe your nose, you wipe your mouth, your eyes, uh, you get something on your hands, you touch something else. It could also be in uh, saliva particles that potentially come out when you're talking or you make a little cough or something and they could get airborne and then land on objects. The CDC is currently saying that the best prevention is to wash your hands and take precautions not to touch your face. This is because we, we really don't know where it's going to show up. We have a we have, I think, a total of five cases that are being investigated here in the United States. Currently, there is a group of Americans from the Wuhan, uh, from the city of Wuhan, which is currently quarantined, along with some other cities in China. They're going to be evacuated to San Francisco, according to the news. Right. Um, but we don't know if any of those people uh, have it or have, you know, have encountered it. So there's going to be a bit of. Um, of quarantine on that end. So, I've um I've signed up for a newsletter from Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security and they give daily updates on what is happening with the coronavirus. The thing that people are talking about currently is something a number called the R not or R0 and that's the reproductive potential of 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 a disease of a virus, how is it going to spread through a population? Now the flu is somewhere around one point four. So if um, if someone uh, with the flu encounters other people, they can infect uh, slightly more than one like one and a half people per uh, per uh, group of people that they uh, interact with, um, but the This coronavirus appears to have a uh, R-naught of between 1.5 to about 3.0, according to recent uh, analyses. And that means that one person who has it could potentially infect up to three people for every 10 that they encounter, which is a pretty big number.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, but... We don't know what the uh, what the case fatality rate is yet. We don't have numbers on really how severe this is. Is it going to be something that spreads very fairly easily, but then doesn't cause much of a problem? Is it going to spread easily and cause uh, respiratory distress and potentially well, about 100 potential people development? Have
0: died in Wuhan, right? So yeah, we're is, up to. You don't die of a common cold, so.
1: Yeah. And this is something that it just uh, overnight, the number of known cases increased by about 60 percent. And that's because they they the health officials know what they're looking for now, whereas before they didn't know what they were looking for. So this is another aspect of, um, you know, of, of determining who has the disease and what and who doesn't. They're about at forty five hundred cases, known cases currently. Um And there's a question as to whether the quarantines that have been uh, implemented in China are actually going to be effective because we've already got spread to other cities around the globe. Yeah, yeah. but at this point, everybody, the flu is still a more deadly virus than what we know of 2019-nCoV. That's not to say that 2019-nCoV as we learn more, might also become a virus of significant concern. However, at this point, what you can do is vaccinate yourself for the flu if you are not already vaccinated because the symptoms are the same. And so if you are protected from the flu, you can help reduce the number of, of uh, possible misdiagnoses that are, occur when you do have to go into the oh, hospital. Good point. Yeah. So if you can reduce that, you can reduce the load on the health system and can actually help with the detection of the NCOV when it needs to be detected. So you can protect yourself by vaccinating for the flu. That'll help the entire health system and wash your hands. Try to, you know, not touch lots of things and touch your face. Um, yeah, the mask and it, is
0: kind of deceptive. You see all these people in China wearing masks. It's not what right. you breathe in. It's maybe the mask is doing double duty, keeping you from touching your face and your nose.
1: Yeah, and you don't necessarily, for this, This you don't necessarily need a uh, an N95 uh, protective mask. Uh, just surgical masks are considered to be fairly effective in spreading those you know, preventing the spread of those airborne particles. All yeah. right, this is just know this is a moving this is a moving case. I think one of the the two big things are, you know, these are the things that you can do: wash your hands, get vaccinated for the flu. That's what you can you can do. The rest of it, this is a developing story. The health organizations around the world are trying to get as much data as they can and that is just be skeptical of what you hear in the media and don't freak out <laughs> all
0: right well we've got to move on, on.
1: yeah let's I do want to more. Hit one more topic
0: in the first segment here before we can okay. take
1: a break. So, sorry i had so much information on that one that was
0: great well thanks that's why i let you run with it that was very useful information so um, the next topic I wanted to get to was an article you pointed to about how Mars used to have surface water. Yes. And perhaps billions of years ago there was running water on the surface of Mars. Mars is a fascinating topic. It's, it's so educational. So many things have happened on Mars that, we, that raise questions about how life evolves and planetary evolution. It's sort of a showcase about you know an ancient partner and what it went through. Tell me more about surface water on Mars.
1: Right. So this was a discovery from um, one of the, the Mars rovers in the, in the Gale Crater. The Curiosity rover was digging into the crater and looking at the sediments, the properties of pore waters. Um, and so they were looking at the sediments and the pH of those sediments that would have indicated that it was a pH of a water con- a, a, of a liquid body that event you know eventually evaporated and went away but that had a pH close to the pH of earth's modern oceans seawater and if seawater yes and wow. if the pH is similar it's just another of those clues that are fitting together to ha- indicate the the real po- probability, not just possibility that life may have existed in some form at one point in Mars's history. And that is so exciting. And like you say, it's this co-evolution of other, you know, uh, other terrestrial bodies in the solar system Unfortunately, Mars's internal dynamo didn't keep on chugging like Earth's to be able to uh, to keep it at the atmosphere to be able to maintain the the forces ne- necessary to preserve.
0: As as I recall, be it's because of the weak or non-existent magnetic field of Mars. Yes. Which has allowed the yeah. solar wind to strip away the atmosphere, which led to the evaporation of water, which yep. kind of just really messed up the planet from get-go. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It really did. I mean, we are so lucky that our, you know, the core at the center of our, of our planet, the iron core, it's, it's spinning around and still it's,
0: partially molten, it's left yes. over from the formation of the planet five billion years ago. It's hard to conceive that there's still molten iron at the core of our Earth.
1: Yeah, and that it's creating the magnetic magnetic field that is protecting us, that it, yeah. that allows our atmosphere to stay on our planet and to foster life. And yeah, we need to caretake what we have because it's special.
0: Now, there have been some false, not false, but incorrect previous reports that scientists had found microbes on Mars, but that's turned out to be not living organisms.
1: Right. We haven't found living. We have not found living organisms. We have not found... Uh, fossilized dead organisms either. We have found though chemical evidence that could indicate life but it could also come from geological processes. Um, There are releases of certain um, potentially biological metabolites uh, of gas into the atmosphere but it could also come from geological release ah. that's and, and so there's a real it's a question that still needs to be answered there is evidence that could go either way
0: okay well one of the things that shows is that it's incredibly difficult for life to take hold and to flourish and to survive for a long period of time
1: yeah, I mean, it, we still have so much of Mars to explore. And
0: Maybe we should just go there and take a look. Maybe. Uh-huh. How's that sound? Sound like a plan? S-
1: sounds great. Let's do that. <laughs> I'm going to call Matt Damon.
0: All right. Well, we've yep. come to the end of the first segment. We've got to take a short commercial break. Folks, I'm chatting with Dr. Kiki Sanford from This Week in Science. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us.
2: Hello there, all you fabulous Background Mode listeners. I'm Charlotte Henry with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, simply go to the Mac Observer's homepage, where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter www.macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, And that will take you to our special page for Apple and all our other affiliate partners. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their way. Pretty cool, right? And even better, you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos and podcasts just like this one. So... The next time you're thinking about an online purchase, please do come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John.
0: We're back. I'm ch- chatting with Dr. Kiki Sanford about science topics of r- recent uh, appearance on her show that have caught my attention and I wanted to explore more. So one of the topics that caught my attention, um, applicable to me actually, is how uh, I stress cause gray hair. That that sounds like a kind of one of those science research projects that that uh, Newt Gingrich used to make fun of. But actually, it's quite helpful information, I think.
1: Absolutely. And I thought this study was so interesting because people have said forever, oh, my goodness, stress is going to give me some gray hairs. And it's just this thing that's kind of accepted by people. And, you know, we have this this very visible evidence of, say, presidents who go into people who are elected to be president and go into the presidency and come out with gray hair. We saw Uh, in Barack (laughs) Obama's
0: case in spades.
1: Um, Yeah. And and so you'd think, okay, we have stress hormones. Cortisol is one. And that has all sorts of physiologic effects that aren't aren't necessarily good if you have chronic high cortisol levels however this study found that yes stress can cause hair to turn gray but it's not because of cortisol it's not because of the reasons that you would potentially think it actually has to do with nerves and nerves involved in the fight-or-flight response these stimulating nerves uh, f- that release norepinephrine or noradrenaline, they stimulate the follicles of your of your hair, and they trigger the stem cells that create the melanin, the coloring uh, proteins in your hair. They they trigger those stem cells to turn into melanocytes and to to divide. And in doing so, they basically, they, they get them all to leave the nest, and then there's no stem cells left to keep turning your hair a nice color other hmm. than gray. So it depletes the store of color-producing stem cells in your, in your head.
0: So... Is there anything you can do about that? Just lower your stress <laughs> level, I guess.
1: That's right. Meditation, long yoga. walks in the forest, yoga. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. low stress life if you want to you keep your hair color without, um, I guess, hair coloring products.
0: We've never seen a president <laughs> in the Oval Office in the lotus position.
1: <laughs> no, I haven't. No,
0: mm-hmm. maybe that should happen. All right. (laughs) All right. Next topic zebra stripes. It's been found, if I understand this correctly, that cows painted with simulated zebra stripes were bitten less often by biting insects.
1: Yes. I want to know if I. How? Why? I don't know. I want to know if I wear striped clothing, black and white striped clothing. Am I going to deter biting insects?
0: Maybe NFL referees can report on
1: this. (laughs) Yeah, that's a That's a really good question. Um, They've done a number of different studies over the years, and there were various hypotheses about, Okay, maybe the black and white stripes had to do with heat loss and keeping the animals cooler, on the savanna. um, But one study after another kept pointing toward protection against biting flies, biting insects. And this latest study back in October um, painted a bunch of cows. (laughs) So not zebras, but they took cows and painted them with stripes to find out if there was a change in how the
0: what how, how, p- what percent reduction was there, do you know? Was it like ten percent or was it like eighty percent?
1: Um, I think the overall let me see if I can look at this figure. Um it, it it was significant according the number of biting flies on the sum of the legs and the body decreased by about fifty percent. Wow. Get, take some error bars, yeah. That's pretty now, significant. We talked
0: before the show about what's going on. So far, the effect has been observed. But before the show, uh, we were talking about the optics of the situation. I wonder if maybe the poor little insect eye is confused by the stripes, or maybe there's a stroboscopic effect. I'm just hypothesizing here. I'm just, yeah. The physicist in me wants to, wants to come up with a theory about maybe when the insect flies around in its movement, Combined with the movement of the stripes in its visual field, creates a pattern in its in its eyes that maybe confuses it. Maybe think maybe this isn't the cow I was looking for.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's that you know Star Wars mind, Jedi mind trick, except with stripes. Yeah, <laughs> this is not the cow. I, that's you just were looking John martelaro's
0: peculiar take on <laughs> the thing. But I'm desperate to know more. I want this. This fascinates me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I hope that the next step in the studies is to look at the fly side of the equation because that that would really start to answer <laughs> this question. We have to look at the flies now. How are they seeing it? What is happening in the little fly brain?
0: Yeah.
1: that uh, that makes them bite less.
0: If we can, it'd be kind of hard to fit little teeny electrodes into the little insect's little brain and get a, get a readout, but maybe.
1: <laughs> oh, neuroscientists <laughs> have their ways. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah well, we'll have to wait until they figure out what's going on with that, but that's yeah, a fascinating I, topic,
1: yeah, it's totally fascinating i'm and I need to go after you you've brought this up, I need to go look into it because I'm sure with all the Drosophila experiments in laboratories around the world, there has been work on stripes and the Drosophila visual system. There's got to be yep. I need to look this up.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right, the next one on the list is sea levels are rising faster than expected. This is not surprising to me. My wife and I have been discussing this for years. She used to work for the U.S. Antarctic Program and is very familiar with the Mm. situation in the Antarctic and global warming. And one day she said to me, you know, the scientists seem to have these linear models, but it's a closed system and it has all the signs of being exponential and that something happens and it propels melting and then the melting changes the albedo and then the albedo changes the sunlight and then you have more melting. And every, every suggestion should be that it would happen you know, not linearly. Um, right. So when I saw this uh, note that you uh, had discussed sea level rising faster than expected, I went, aha! Aha! Just as we had (laughs) talked about. Tell me more about the article.
1: Yeah, so this particular article was looking at the methods that are used to determine sea level rise. And currently, one of the methods is that it uses tide gauges. And tide gauges are anchored in coastal regions about 20 meters into the Earth, but not at the surface. And the researchers were saying that because of where they're located, they don't record subsi- subsidence, which is like the sinking of the land itself as a result of the retreating waters from underneath. Ah. And so you've got this uh, a change in the height of the land, but because the tide gauges are located in a particular place, they're underestimating the rates of relative sea level rise. And they argue that there needs to be an adjustment in how we measure sea level rise in these coastal lowlands that are rapidly subsiding. So it's a it's a big question. I think moving forward, we've got uh, satellites that are being placed in orbit using um, you know very very high resolution uh, technology to be able to measure sea level rise from the sky. And I think that is going to be one of the big steps in getting a real accurate measurement of what's going on. But even beyond this study, which was a methodological question, you know, how are we looking at it and getting a very accurate picture? Is our picture accurate enough? Um, There is just rapid sea level rise things are starting to melt faster in general than we were expecting and this is there are other papers that have come out that discuss you know as uh, feedback cycles in the atmosphere and the oceans take place there is an increasing increasing rate of heating and melt that is is not good
0: so as a result the um Epochs that you may have estimated are backed off, and we don't have as much time as we thought we did. I was reading in Aviation Week, by the way, as an aside, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2020 allows the U.S. military, all the armed forces, to explore, with authorization and funding, the effects of climate change. The Navy's particularly interested in this um, because they have so many seaports around the world.
1: Right and And this study, one of the big uh, the big take-home points, is that these low-lying coastal areas are going to be a lot more vulnerable to flooding, moving forward. Uh, and so the Navy, if you've got your ports in, certain locations that are easy access now, how are they going to be affected moving forward? How is flooding going to affect cities and populations of people? I mean, even the military aspect here is huge because for security reasons, you're going to be understandably... Dealing with migrations of large numbers of people leaving these places that are, you know, when hurricane season hits, dealing with more flooding because of uh, the increase in sea level and that, um, and the the push of the water in from the storm surge. And yeah, it, it's just, it's going to be very interesting. It affects and, the
0: local population too. I mean, yeah. the local economy is in trouble yeah. and flooded, and yeah. the bars are underwater when the seamen go ashore. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. You got economic problems supporting the port from the local population, and so it kind of is a synergistic effect.
1: It is. Yeah. It's a. It's. There are a lot of factors that are going to mean get that are going to necessarily be taken into account moving forward.
0: Yeah. I think we have time for another topic or two. We're coming to the close of the show here, but let's try one more. Okay, let's I'm do it. Particularly interested in. Plankton. I've been reading for a long time about how plankton at the base of the food chain are in trouble because of the acidification of the oceans due to CO2. And the percolation effect of the loss of plankton works its way up the food chain, could have a catastrophic, catastrophic effect on sea life. So you referenced uh, an article about plankton decline related to atmospheric CO2. Tell me more. <laughs>
1: You, you pretty much introduced it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just an amateur. You're the pro,
1: yeah. so in this in this study from nature, researchers were looking at the hypothesis of how phytoplankton, this base of the food web, uh, would respond to changes of atmosphere of atmospheric carbon dioxide. and there weren't a lot of measurements before satellite monitoring. And so now they've got this multi-century record of marine. Yeah. So this isn't just a short-term look. This is looking at productivity over a long period of time and that they have a, a, 10 plus or minus 7%, so it could be 3%, it could be 17% decline in net primary productivity across the the Atlantic Ocean Basin over the last 200 years. 200.
0: 200.
1: Right. And what they are suggesting is that this uh, decline in industrial area, we've got crashing fish stock, uh, reduced, you know, so there are reduced numbers of fish for fishermen to catch. And the evidence of that may be coming from this collapse of the plankton stock that is happening because the Atlantic overturning circulation, it's called the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, um, is weakening and it has been projected by climate change uh, models for a while that this would happen. And because the waters are not turning over in the way that they should, the cold waters uh, coming up from the bottom that are highly, uh, highly nutrient rich, um, that's taking away from the, the nutrients that are available to these plankton. So and then the cycling that occurs is not happening in the way that it that it should be to be able to support um, productive fish stocks.
0: So one of the countries that um, depends a lot on sea life for its food supply is Japan. Yeah, I've been watching James May's tour of Japan on Amazon And the uh, eating habits of the people in Japan are wildly different, if his his tour is any kind of indication. Um, So one of the questions I had before the show started was, do you have any information on this? What would happen if all sea life were to die? I mean, could, could human beings survive, or would there be secondary impacts that no. are unforeseen. I mean, you know, we can continue to eat chicken and beef.
1: I mean, if you're talking about all sea life, and including those, the, the base of the food webs, the, phyto, mm-hmm. the plankton yeah. and, um, you know, algae that exist in the, in the oceans, no, humans would die. Um, Is this because there wouldn't be
0: any animal life in the oceans to deal with the CO2 and produce desirable effects?
1: That's part of it. And there is a large amount of uh, microbial life in the oceans that produces oxygen. It's not yeah. just, you know, it's taking out carbon dioxide and producing oxygen that we breathe. Um,
0: so, so trees if, account for like what, a third of the oxygen in the ocean yeah. results in something more than half of the oxygen?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The ocean is uh, essential. We we like to think that trees are the, oh, trees, they produce the oxygen we breathe, which they do, part of it, but not all of it. And the ocean is, the the ocean is really part of the lung system of the earth.
0: Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's it's unfortunate because it's kind of out of sight unless you live in a coastal area and you're a fisherman. The uh, impact of the ocean on your life for most Americans who live inland is not very visible. And we think about it. Yeah coal-fired power plants and CO2 in the air and reducing emissions from our cars. But we don't really think too much about the health of the ocean ecosphere. Yeah,
1: yeah. this is, uh, the, the idea of, you know, existing on this planet. I've had several conversations with scientists recently about, uh, Modern society, having gotten away from uh, traditional indigenous knowledge, and there's a lot to be learned about uh, the caretaking of this planet and living within the systems that exist on it, not just taking from the systems to support ourselves, but actually living within them and within the limits of them so that we can allow the planet life on the planet and humanity to flourish
0: absolutely absolutely well that's going to have to be a wrap kiki
1: oh already
0: yeah already we've gone through 36 (laughs) minutes and we hit all the hot topics that i wanted to hit on plus some leftover maybe we can do next time
1: Okay, I Thanks. look forward
0: to it. Thanks for coming back on the show. I look forward to the next appearance of you on Background Mode.
1: I can't wait. Thank you so much for inviting me back.
0: So tell the listeners how they can contact you if they have feedback and want to communicate with you.
1: You can find me at kirsten at thisweekinscience.com. That's my email. Or you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Kiki.
0: Great, great. Yeah. Folks, you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode with Dr. Kiki Sanford and John Marchalero hosting.